John 14, 5 through 10. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you had known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The word of the Lord. Well, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're looking at the big questions, um, the big objections and obstacles, really, that people have to faith in God and especially to faith in Jesus and Christianity. And this morning, we're looking at um, the exclusivity of Christianity. In other words, people will say, you know, how can Christians say that Jesus is the only way? It's so intolerant, it's so narrow-minded, it's so exclusive. It's the exclusivity of Christianity. Um, now, that's one of the big objections, and I understand why, especially in our culture, in our world, which has grown more and more inclusive over the last number of years. And that's a good thing, really. I mean, our culture puts an extremely high value, maybe the highest value, on things like tolerance and inclusion and freedom and the equal worth and value and dignity of every single human being. Um, therefore, in our culture, to say that one religion out of all the religions of the world and one God out of all the thousands of other gods is the one true religion and the one true God, that just seems like the height of arrogance and intolerance and narrow-mindedness. And you know what? I agree. In fact, um, you know, I didn't start really exploring faith in God until I was 29 years old. And uh, this was my biggest objection to Christianity by far. This was the thing that I struggled with more than anything else. How can Jesus be the only way to God? I really struggled with that because I didn't grow up in a religious home. Um, my parents never talked about God. Um, the only time I ever heard the words Jesus Christ were when my dad was angry. But... You know, I had gotten to a point where I believed that there had to be some kind of God, and I really wanted to know who this God was. So I was really attracted to the person of Jesus Christ, but I struggled with the idea that Jesus is the only way. Because I was looking at all kinds of other things, too. I mean, I was investigating Buddhism, I was looking at New Age spirituality, and I was very influenced by the kinds of sayings you'll hear in our culture, like, all, all the paths lead to the top of the mountain. All spiritual paths lead to God. That made sense to me. And so it really bothered me um, to consider the possibility that Jesus is the only way to God. And lots of other people struggle with that too. 
In fact, I think it's true that in general, religion does have a tendency to lead to superiority, oppression, division, and violence in the world. So why would I stand up here and advocate for the idea that, that Christianity is the only true religion and Jesus is the only true God? Why would I say that? The reason I would say it is because not only do I think it's true, and I do, but because I think this truth is the only truth that actually has the resources within it to work against our innate tendencies to superiority, oppression, division, and violence in the world. Only the gospel can do that. How? Let's take a look this morning by looking at what is probably the most famous statement that Jesus ever made um, along these lines. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the most famous statements ever made. Jesus is saying three things. He's saying he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Let's look at each one of those in order to see what it has to show us about this question of exclusivity. And I'm going to take them a little bit out of order. First, we're going to look at Jesus as the truth, and then we're going to look at Jesus as the way, and then Jesus as the life, okay? So first, Jesus says he is the truth. In other words, you know, Jesus does the big no-no in our culture. He does the thing that we say nobody should ever do in our culture. He makes an absolute religious truth claim. You know, because let's restate the objection, okay? It's very common for people to say any claim to have absolute religious truth is intolerant and narrow-minded. It always leads to superiority and division. And no one should ever say that they have the truth. Instead, we should recognize that all religions are equally true. That's what we say. All religions are equally true. All religious truth is relative. Okay. Now, there have been some very famous proponents of this view. For instance, Gandhi once said, um, he said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Or Oprah Winfrey has said, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, she says, there are many diverse paths leading to God. In fact, it's so common to hear these things, and these are so commonly accepted in our culture that anyone who believes otherwise is almost instantly labeled as being intolerant, narrow-minded, and divisive. And listen, you know, I want to affirm the motivation behind these statements because we want the world to live at peace. We don't want people to hate each other, to fight each other, to kill each other, especially in the name of a god. So the motivation behind this is a really good motivation I want to affirm that, but here's the question. Does it work? Are all religions equally true? There's a very famous parable used to support that idea. You may have heard it. It's called the parable of the, the four blind men and the elephant. And it goes like this. There are four blind men, and they're walking along, and they come upon an elephant. And the first blind man reaches out, and he touches the side of the elephant, and he says, oh, an elephant is like a wall. The second blind man reaches out and he grabs hold of the trunk of the elephant and he says, oh no, an elephant is like a snake. Uh, the third blind man reaches out and he touches the leg of the elephant and he says, no, no, an elephant is more like a tree. The last blind man grabs hold of the tail and he says, all you guys are wrong, an elephant's really more like a rope. And so they start arguing with one another. In fact, their arguing gets so loud that they wake up the king and the king comes out, looks down over the balcony and sees the blind men there and the elephant and he says, all of you guys are wrong. Or actually, all of you have just a little bit of the truth. 
But an elephant is a big animal. So stop your arguing. Each one of you has just a little bit of the truth, and the only way you're going to find the truth is to put all of your little pieces together in order to find out what an elephant is really like. You see, I mean, this makes sense. I mean, it sounds very reasonable to us. Each religion has a little part of the truth, but no one religion has the whole truth. Um, and if we put them all together, then we're going to see the whole truth. It sounds very reasonable, but there's a problem with it. The problem is that this parable is told from the point of view of the king, who's not blind. And he comes out on his balcony, and he can see the whole elephant. And, and you think about that, and you realize what it's saying. What is that? Leslie Newbegin was a British missionary to India for decades, and he heard this parable many, many times in the course of his missionary endeavors. Um, and he points out in one of his books, here's what he says about the parable. He says, the story, this parable, is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions, to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king, and it is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after. I mean, you see what he's saying. The only way that you can say that all religions are true is if you think you see the whole truth that they only see a part of. To say there's no such thing as absolute religious truth is an absolute religious truth claim. You're doing what you say nobody else should do. The only way you can say no religion has a comprehensive view of spiritual reality is if you think you have a comprehensive view of spiritual reality. Now listen, here's the point. Truth claims are unavoidable. Truth claims are inevitable. It's impossible to avoid making truth claims, even spiritual and religious truth claims. You are going to adopt a view of ultimate spiritual reality that you think is true. Even if you say no one can know the truth about spiritual reality, that is a view of spiritual reality. How do you know that's true? You can try to disguise it in relativistic language, but that's all it is. It's just a disguise. It doesn't change the fact that you are making an absolute religious truth claim. Let's be honest about it, okay? Truth claims are inevitable. Truth claims are unavoidable. And that leads to our second point. Jesus doesn't just say that he is the truth. Jesus says that he is the way. And in many ways, this is the central claim that Jesus is making here. This whole passage is a discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples about the way to God. What is the way to God? What is the way to the Father? So it's, it's not just that Jesus is making a truth claim. It's the nature of his claim. He says, I am the way and no one comes to the Father except through me. When he says that, that is a religious truth claim about how one finds God, about how one connects to God. Jesus is saying, me. Me. I'm the one you have to deal with. I'm the one you have to reckon with. It's not an ethical system. It's not a program of moral self-improvement. I'm the one you have to deal with. I'm the one you have to embrace and trust and give your whole life and heart and being to. Me. I mean, what Jesus is saying here is completely focused on Jesus. It's completely focused on him. If it's not true, then Jesus is either a raving lunatic or the worst case of narcissistic personality disorder the world has ever seen. 
when you really consider what he's saying. I mean, this is a huge claim. It's an extreme claim. It's a radical claim. Really, it's an explosive claim. It's so explosive that for centuries, people have been trying to get around it. It can't be done, but people try. So for instance, many people just deny that Jesus ever said this, especially because this statement comes in the Gospel of John, and people say, well, the Gospel of John was the last Gospel ever written 50 to 60 years after the time of Jesus, and by that time, you know, the guy who wrote it, John, he was making up all these legends about Jesus and and putting things in Jesus' mouth that Jesus never really said. That's what people say. Now, there are two big problems with that view, and the first one is this. Even the earliest Gospels, even the earliest Gospels, Proclaim Jesus as making claims to divinity. This is not a late invention. It was there from the very beginning. And even earlier than the Gospels, many of the other letters in the New Testament, many of them written by the Apostle Paul, for instance, um, proclaim Jesus as being divine, make claims about the, div- the divinity of Jesus. This is not a late invention. It's in the Bible from the very earliest days and from the very earliest documents. And if you want to know more about that, I'm not going to defend much of that right now. I'm just making the assertion. But if you want to learn more, come back on Easter. We're going to get more into that in much greater detail. But but those divine claims are there from the very earliest parts of the ministry of Jesus and in the Gospels. Okay, And that leads to another problem with saying that that Jesus never said this. Uh, Sometimes people will say, well, no Jewish person would have ever said this. To say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that goes completely against anything any orthodox, monotheistic Jewish person would ever believe because their view of God is that he is so high, so holy, so transcendent that the idea that any human being could be God is not just inconceivable, it's blasphemous. But, you know, if you say that, it just proves the point because the historical reality is that Within years, just a handful of years after his death and resurrection, thousands upon thousands of orthodox, monotheistic, Jewish people were worshiping Jesus as God. This was not a late invention. This was there at the very, very beginning of the whole movement. This idea came from somewhere. It was there from the very beginning. In fact, the historical evidence overwhelmingly supports the reality that that, um, that Jesus did, in fact, say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which means that, that for other people, the only way to get around it is instead of denying it, they try to reinterpret it. So, for instance, people will say, look, Jesus isn't saying he literally is the way. He's just saying he points to the way. Jesus was one of many great religious teachers, and if we just followed his teachings... You know, things like the golden rule and love your neighbor and and all of that, then the world would be a better place. Now, I want to spend some time thinking about that statement because you realize that brings us back to the same kinds of statements that we were looking at in the beginning. Statements like, all religions teach the same thing. Let's focus on what they have in common instead of what they don't. That's the way that will lead to peace on earth. You see, everybody's got their take on the way. Because not only do we all make religious truth claims, even atheists do, those religious truth claims all involve some idea of the way. What do I mean? Every religion, every worldview, every way of life, every system of thought, every approach to life, every philosophy, all of them uh, involve basic answers to the biggest questions of life. Okay, Every worldview, every philosophy, every religion 
offers basic answers to the biggest questions of life. And two of the biggest questions are, what's wrong with the world and what's the solution? What's wrong with the world and what's the solution? Everybody in this room has answers to those questions. Even if you've never stated it that way, you can't operate in this world without some basic framework, without some basic assumptions about the answers to those questions. What's wrong with the world? What's the solution? You know what that is? Your answers to those questions, that's a doctrine of salvation. And everyone has one. Everybody has some version of the way. So different religions have different answers to these questions. So for many religions, it might be the way to God or the way to heaven. Uh, For Eastern religions, it might be the way to nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness. Even secular um, versions of this say, this is the way to peace on earth. This is the way to make the world a better place. Everybody has different answers to the questions, what's wrong and what's the solution? But however you answer them, that is your doctrine of salvation. Therefore, if you say that Jesus is one of many great religious teachers, and if we just followed their teachings, the world would be a better place, you can't make a statement like that without making certain basic assumptions. And by the way, they're faith assumptions. Without making certain basic assumptions about what's wrong with the world and what the solution is. That is a doctrine of salvation. And that particular doctrine of salvation is based on the assumption that we human beings have within ourselves the resources to heal our lives and heal the world. Right? So here's the thing. If you try to level all religious truth claims, including Jesus, and say they all teach the same thing, not only are you displaying, at best, a lackadaisical ignorance, at worst, a prideful contempt for the world's religions, you are taking your Western pluralistic, secular doctrine of salvation and simply asserting it over all the other world's religions. You know what that is? That's colonization. And we in the West love to do that. Why do we do that? Specifically with religious truth claims? Because we hate the implications of what Jesus says here. We, don't, we want Jesus to be like all the other religious leaders. We want him to be like all the other people who came and said, oh, no, no, I'm not the way. I point to the way. That's what they all said. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, they all said, I point to the way. None of them would have ever said, I am the way. They just said, I point to the way. We want Jesus to be like that. We don't want Jesus to say, I am the way. Because he's always saying, I don't point the way to salvation. I am the way to salvation. You know, we don't want him to do that. And we'll jump through hoops to try to make him not do that. We'll look at the words on the paper in black and white. There it is. And we'll say, well, I know that's what he says, but that's not what he means. It can't be what he means. It doesn't fit my Western inclusivistic cultural paradigm. So we refuse to wrestle with the claim. Really, we refuse to allow Jesus to speak for himself. It's just too wild. It's too extreme. It's too extravagant. For us, really, it's just too exclusive. But the thing is, Jesus is not saying, I point to the way to salvation. He's saying, I am the way to salvation. I am the way to God. I am the way that you connect with the Father. I am the way that you can find forgiveness and redemption. It's only through me. And we hate that because it's just so exclusive. And you know what? Yeah, it is. But remember what we just saw. Everybody has a doctrine of salvation. Everybody has some answers to the questions, what's wrong with the world? What's the solution? 
And whatever your answers to those questions are, that's your doctrine of salvation, which means that everybody's going to be exclusive, but in different ways. I mean, think about it. The most common complaint I hear about the exclusivity of Christianity is people will ask, well, what about all the good people who never heard about Jesus? What about, why can't any good person find God? You notice how there's always an assumption in there. The assumption is it's the good people who find God and the bad people who don't. It's still exclusive. It's just exclusive in a different way. That assumption is so embedded in our culture. I've never heard the objection stated in any form or any way that doesn't include some component that's talking about the good people. Right? We want to know what happens to all the good people. It's the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. That assumption is embedded in our culture. We say that it's important. It's more important than anything else to be a good person. The purpose of religion is to show us how to be good people. The way you connect to God is by being a good person. It's embedded in our culture. We don't even question it. So, for instance, do you remember the movie Ghost? I know some of you may be a little young for this. But, you know, the movie Ghost is all about two good people named Sam and Molly. And they get mugged early on in the movie. And the mugger, the bad guy, kills Sam. And then do you remember what happens at the end of the movie? Um, The mugger gets hit by a car, I think, and all the evil spirits come up from hell and they drag him down because he's the bad guy. But then Sam, oh, he just walks off into the light at the end because why? He's a good person. That assumption is embedded in our culture. If you don't, I mean, if you do believe that any good person can find God, you're still being exclusive. You're just being exclusive in a different way. But Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity. Why? Our culture says the good people are in, but the bad people are out. The gospel says the weak people are in and the strong people are out. What does that mean? Listen, if you believe that God accepts any good person, you know, that sounds more fair. But listen, the world is not fair. What about people who grew up in nasty, wicked, violent, abusive homes where they were constantly hated and abused and victimized, and then they grew up to become abusers and victimizers themselves? Yeah, they're bad people. And no, we didn't turn out like that. But how do you know that if you had grown up in a home like that, you wouldn't have turned out like that? If the good people are in and the bad people are out, that allows all the rest of us to look down our nose at all the bad people in the world and feel morally justified in condemning them. And you know what? If you don't believe me, look at what we do online, in social media, in the comments sections, threads. And even if you don't do that or treat people like that online, then you feel inwardly smugly superior to people who do. (laughs) And the fact that you're laughing tells me that you know it's true. If you say any good person can find God, then you're saying that the good people are in and the bad people are out. You're still being exclusive. But if Jesus Christ says, only the weak can find me, only if you admit that you're weak and morally compromised, only if you admit that even your very best deeds are shot through with all kinds of selfish, self-centered motivations, only if you admit that your only fitness is that you're in desperate need of God. If Jesus is saying that, then what he's saying is the weak are in and the humble are out. I mean, the humble are in and the strong are out, right? Every single other religion focuses on you and what you should do, right? 
It says that, you know, here's what you must do. You've got the resources within yourself. We have the resources within us. Be a good person. Come on, what's wrong with you? Step it up. Even secularism operates according to this example. I mean, it's, if there is no God, if this world is all there is, then our only hope for this world really does lie only within ourselves. But Jesus is the only one who ever came and said, stop focusing on yourself and start focusing on me. He's the only one who ever came and said, not here's what you must do, but here's what I have done. He's the only one who ever came and said, not I point to the way, but I am the way. I mean, what kind of human being says that? The answer is no human being, no sane human being. Because if Jesus really did say this, and he did, then, then you should run as far away from him as you possibly can. But don't come with any nonsense about following his teachings. Because if he really said this, and he did, then, then your only choices really are either to curse him or to fall at your feet and worship him. But do not try to tame him. He is not a tame God. He will not, you have to let him roar. Or, or try to destroy him. But those are your only two options. Friends, every other religion in the world, every other way of life, every other doctrine of salvation says that you must perform. Here's the moral path, and you must perform it in order to find the way. Only the gospel gives you a God and a Savior who shows you a God and a Savior who performed for you. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the way. But lastly, Jesus says he is the life. Because I want to come back to where we were in the beginning. We saw that exclusive religious truth claims have a tendency to make people superior, oppressive, divisive, and violent. In fact, I hope I'm not being too wildly controversial to point out that um, it's not just religion that does this to people. Uh, it's politics. It's media. It's everywhere. I'm, you know... Conservatives think that liberals are ruining the country. Liberals look down their noses at conservatives. Um, fundamentalists think that science people are evil maniacs, and the science people think that fundamentalists are Neanderthals. Um, everybody feels superior, right? Everybody thinks the other person's a dangerous fool. What's the solution for that? Jesus says, I am the life. You know what he's saying? Look, it's true that you know, Christianity does offer us moral principles by which to live. You know, the one thing that all religions really do share in common is they all offer us a very similar moral platform. They all offer us a very similar moral vision for how we should be living in this world. The difference is only Christianity says that our moral performance in this world is not the basis of our salvation, but the result of it. Our moral performance is not the basis of our salvation, it's the result of it, which means there's a question. And the question is, okay, how and where do we get the power to live the lives that we ought to live, to live lives of, of goodness and courage and love and sacrifice, and to do so without feeling superior to all the people who don't live the way we live and believe the way we believe? How are we going to do that? Jesus said, I am the life. In other words, when Jesus comes into your life, he brings his life into you. In and of ourselves, we don't have the resources. 
We don't have the resources to live the way we ought to live. We don't have the resources to heal our lives. We certainly don't have the resources to heal the world. Jesus says, my life has to come into yours. My power has to come into you. That's the only way you can live the way you ought to live. And if that doesn't happen, if you say, look, you know, I want to find God, and I'm going to start going to church, reading the Bible, and I'm going to you know, obey the moral commands, and I'm going to try to follow the teachings of the great religious teachers, that'll just crush you. Nobody can live like that. Nobody can do it. The only way you can do that is if Jesus brings his life inside of you and gives you a whole new life and a whole new power for living the way you ought. And what happens if he does that? Are you beginning to see? If you need Jesus' life in order to live the life you ought, that means that in and of yourself, apart from Jesus, you don't have the power to live that way. You don't have the resources to live that way. You never could. You never will. That means that Christianity is the only religion in the world that would lead you to expect that every single other person in the world is a better person than you are. Christianity is the only religion with the resources built right into it to keep you from seeing everybody else in the world as a dangerous fool. Why? Because the center of the gospel, the very heartbeat of Christianity, what is it? The God of the universe dying for his enemies. Dying for you. I mean, how does Jesus save us? What is the way? It's the way to the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you want to see truth? Do you want to know what the truth is? Look at the cross. The cross shows you the ultimate truth that you are so desperately in need of salvation and forgiveness and redemption that you needed the God of the universe to come and die for you on the cross. That's a hard truth. That's a big truth, but that's ultimate truth. And do you want to experience life, real life, abundant life? Look at Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the source of life. He is the fountain of life. He is the life from which all other life springs in this world. And yet on the cross, Jesus gave his life so that he could give it to you, so that his life could come inside of you, so that he could give you a life that you don't earn, you don't achieve it, you don't work for it, you don't perform your way into that. You can only receive it by grace. Friends, if that is the central truth that defines your life, the central thing that defines you, oh my goodness, how are you ever going to feel superior to others? Only the gospel has the resources for peace on earth. If you do feel superior, it just means that the gospel hasn't really gripped your heart. It hasn't really gotten past your mind and down into your heart and changed your life yet. Only the gospel has the resources, really, truly has the resources for peace in this world. Because the gospel says that you're not saved by your moral performance. You're not saved by being a good person. You're not saved by obeying the teachings of the great religious leaders. It says you're saved by grace, by admitting that you can't save yourself. Is that exclusive? Yeah. But at least the playing field is level this way. Or if there is an advantage, it goes to the weakest, the worst, and the most messed up of people. Because the gospel is the most inclusive exclusivity because it opens up to the worst and the weakest and those with the least resources. You see, if you, if you think that you're a good person, if you're what the world calls a good person, or if you're what you would call a good person, watch out. That goodness of yours is the thing that will keep you from seeing your real need of God. 
you know, when I was that 29-year-old person looking for God, I mean, it lasted a while. I was, I was 30 years old. You know, I've got all these questions. I've got all these struggles. Um, how can Jesus be the only way? I remember one night, um, I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and he just happened to be a Christian. And I was sharing with him my struggles. I was sharing with him all of my questions. And he said, Eric, you know, there's really only one question you need to answer. Is Jesus Lord or not? Because if he's not, then none of those other questions matter. But if he is, it's the only question that matters. Now, that was a life-changing conversation for me because I realized he's right. If Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what he was saying is, I'm the one you have to deal with. Yeah, there are other questions involved, and they're important questions. We should ask questions. One of the reasons this church is here is because we want you to ask questions. But there comes a point when, when our questions go from being honest inquiry to becoming a smokescreen that we use to keep God at arm's length. For instance, what about all the good people who never heard of Jesus? I think that's an important question too. The Bible really doesn't tell us very much about that. But there's a little conversation that happened at the very end of the Gospel of John where uh, Jesus took Peter for a walk. And, and they're talking and Jesus was telling Peter, Peter, um, you're going to die a martyr's death for the sake of my gospel. And Peter turned around and he saw the disciple John following them. And he said, hey, Jesus, what about him? And Jesus said, what about him? You follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't concern yourself with what I'm doing with other people. Let me be concerned about what I'm doing with other people. You concern yourself about what I'm doing with you. Or, as Aslan was constantly saying to the children in Narnia, child, I tell no one any story but their own. Friends, there are lots of lords and lots of gods out there, but every single one of those lords comes to you at the end of the day and says, you must be your own savior. Jesus is the only Lord who, instead of demanding that you give your life for him, he gave his life for you. Where are you at with this Lord this morning? Are you still trying to save yourself? Or are you ready and willing to receive his offer of salvation and life that he offers to you? And if you have received it, is the gospel changing your life? Is it transforming you more and more into a person of compassion and humility and gentleness and generosity and charity towards other people? Is it making you an agent of peace in this world? Let the magnitude of who Jesus is impact your heart. Let him roar in your life. It'll change your life. Let's pray.